Today on the show, we are talking about new mortgage rules announced by the federal government. Welcome to the Simple Money Solutions Podcast, where we focus on your money from a Canadian perspective. This podcast is produced weekly, and show notes for every episode can be found at livelifecontrol.ca. Now let's get on with the show. Hey everybody, I'm your host Courtney, and joining me today is my co-host Trevor. As mentioned in the introduction, today we are talking about new mortgage rules announced by the federal government. So, Trevor, according to the federal government, there are two new issues contributing to the housing bubble in Canada. What are they? Well, in the news articles I've read, and I've been following this for a while, it appears to be loose mortgage lending practices by financial institutions and foreign investors. And so the foreign investors are artificially inflating the, the, the real estate demand in that they're they're in buying houses and maybe flipping them and, and not taking possession of these houses or living in them. They're just buying them, waiting till the value goes up and dumping them. And then loose lending practices, uh, we'll get into that later in this in this show, but it's it's really something that's uh, people finding loopholes in, in how to get approved for mortgages maybe they can't really afford. So why do you think we are even in a housing bubble to begin with? Supply and demand, basic economics cannot explain price points. So House prices have been outstripping income for quite some time. I read a stat in the Globe and Mail in Canada. A house, the average house price in Canada is seven times the average annual household income. And 20 years ago, that number was three times. So 20 years ago, the average house price in Canada was three times the an- average annual household income. So that would say house prices are outstripping income by four times. So it, that's that's significant. That that would suggest uh, a bubble. So. House prices are going to be driven by something other than inflation. And when people buy houses uh, sooner rather than later in fear of prices going up, this just fuels the bubble. And another thing is uh, I can't count the articles I read in the Toronto Star every week where houses in Toronto are selling over list. It's almost an expectation that a house will sell over list. And part of this is strategies real estate agents use where they list a house artificially loaded to, to you know, entice a bidding war between buyers. But just the fact that they know that'll work says there, there's a, a, a fear of buy now before the price gets too high. So how can you relate supply and demand um, to this bubble? How does, it, how does it even come into play? Well, we, in Canada, we have so much land. We, we really shouldn't have a, a supply issue, right? There, there's, there's almost an unlimited supply of land. So the supply really should be there. And there hasn't been a significant spike in our population uh, recently. Like it hasn't increased tenfold or anything like that. So the, the demand shouldn't have gone up. So it's really being driven out, out of fear and speculation. Um, and Trevor, how is the interest rates um, being posed as a solution to this problem? Well, it's, it would never be a popular decision by the government. And any, uh, the government, actually, it's the Bank of Canada that, would, that makes decisions on interest rates. The government can inf- influence the Bank of Canada. But... If you increase interest rates, you, in essence, increase the cost of carrying a mortgage. And back in the 80s, interest rates were, you know, 11 12%. There was a, a lot of people that just could not afford to buy a house, or carry a mortgage. Rent was cheaper. And today, with interest rates at the record lows they're at, people ask themselves, you know, why, why would I rent? Buying is, is, in some cases, cheaper. For sure. So, Trevor, on that note, we're going to jump into our first article selected for this episode. Um, it's from the Global and Mail, and it's entitled Five Previous Federal Housing Moves Since 2008. And you so know, since- you know, I, you know re- reading this article, 
I, I've been I followed the uh, real estate thing quite closely, but you know until I see it summarized, I can't believe there's been five changes since since 2008. That that's a pretty small window. That's that's eight years. I, I can't believe you know I, I haven't sort of been keeping score, but that that's that's a lot. Oh, it is. It is, and it's it's um it definitely shows the prominence of this issue within within Canada and how how much the government feels like they need to address it. So I'll just start reading the article. Quote, Monday's package of announcements is the sixth time, so six, since the outset of the 2008 financial crisis that Ottawa has taken policy action in response to concerns about Canada's housing market. In July of 2008, after briefly allowing the CMHC to ensure high-ratio mortgages with a 40-year amortization period, the then-conservative finance minister, Jim Flaherty, moved to tighten those rules by reducing the maximum length of an insured high-ratio mortgage to 35 years. So, Trevor, what does this mean? Well, to start with, a 40-year mortgage is complete insanity. So Why? Why is it, Trevor? Well, in order to uh, achieve any uh, level of wealth in, in to retire or to live a balanced lifestyle, you can't be house poor. And so if you're spreading the cost of your house over 40 years, you may never retire. But 35 years is still too long. My my position on, on amortization has been 15 years. But the goal of this rule was to, uh, obviously, if you take the, the amount of money you're going to mortgage and you spread it over a longer period, the payments are smaller. So the, the goal of this was to to shrink that, that amortization period down to make mortgages more expensive, to drive some people out of the housing market. Do you think the shrink to 35 years as opposed to 40 was not drastic enough, or was it enough change that really did cause change at the time? I think it should be capped at 25 years, and I don't think five years was enough. I think it, it all, all this would have done, it, it wouldn't have squeezed people out of the housing market. It would have just moved people into less expensive houses, and maybe you know that really is the goal. Uh, this was a very a soft touch, a good first try. You answered my next question. I was going to ask how the government played into this rule. Do you think the Liberal government or never another government would have uh, maybe had this onset um, differently? Well, I think back in two thousand and eight, I, I don't. I don't think we we weren't in the bubble we are today. So they they. I think this was a proactive move on their part. Uh, I don't think it was as serious then as it is today. So I think it was a a reasonable step. So moving on to the second announcement, this took place in February of 2010. So responding to concern that some Canadians were borrowing too much against the rising value of their homes, the government lowered the maximum amount Canadians could borrow in refinancing their mortgages to 90% of a home's value, down from 95%. This move also set a new 20% down payment requirement for government-backed mortgage insurance on properties purchased for speculation by an owner who does not live in the property. So Trevor, break this down for us. Well, this is really uh, geared toward the people who are buying real estate to, to flip houses or just from an investment standpoint. They, they don't want to live in it, as, as it says in the article. Uh, people who are uh, trying to b- buy a house just for the purpose of, of flipping it from the appreciation standpoint. So people use real estate for two, two things. One is as a place to live and two is as an investment. And this is to deter people from using it only as an investment tool. Trevor, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, because some of our listeners might not be aware of the term flipping. Can you just define that for them? Yeah, flipping is where you buy a house. And I think this is pretty much illegal in Canada now. But this is where you buy a house, you never actually move in, and you sell it six months later. That's just six months is just a random thing. It could be a year later. And people do that in that real estate is appreciating at such a rate that 
they, they don't actually have to live in it. They, they can buy it, sell it, not even really move in. So it's, If you had to estimate, how popular do you think this phenomenon is? Well, in the 1980s, it was just running rampant. People were flipping houses as and making a living from it. Right now, I think it's you have to. It's somewhat been outlawed, and I, I think it, you have to do it more mysteriously. So, what's Trevor? What's the inherent danger in flipping houses or living in a or owning a property you don't actually live in? Well, like I say, the the housing market is really is designed to be twofold. It is one is a place to live, two uh, an investment in, or a way to build wealth. As long as everybody's in it for those both those reasons, the housing market works quite fine. It's when some people get in it only for one of those reasons, and that is an investment tool, that it's, it starts to inflate at a rate that, that people who want to use it as a, place, as a tool, as a place to live, can no longer afford. So in, in that article, it also mentioned that uh, people borrowing money against the equity in their homes... To, to borrow 90% of the against the equity in your home is, is another crazy, uh, uh, obviously this has been further reduced as time went on, but I, I think there, this was more, this, this change was twofold. It was one was trying to protect Canadians from themselves by having too much household debt, and two, it was to discourage people using real estate as an investment tool only. Trevor, I have this question slated in for later, but I love that you brought it up. Uh, you, you just said in your last statement, to protect Canadians from themselves. Why Why is this such a, an issue? Shouldn't Canadians not, should Canadians need to have rules and regulations put in place to, to protect them? Or should they not have the self-control or self-knowledge to know that they can't afford a mortgage or a house? Well, we're a very socialist society in Canada, and we're used to being spoon-fed a lot of things by our government. And I think we live under such regulation in this country that when there isn't enough regulation, we, by nature, uh, assume it's okay. And so I, I do think we need to be saved from ourselves to some degree. So I read another stat I read, if this happened to be in the Financial Post, uh, for every dollar earned in Canada, a dollar sixty-five is owed. That's not good for anybody. So I think we do need regulation to redefine the new normal, if that makes sense. No, definitely, because to, to your point there, things do things do get out of hand and you kind of lose perspective with what what the normal is so i definitely agree with that statement um so moving on to the very the third announcement this came in july of 2011 the conservative government under stephen harper tightened the rules further dropping the maximum amortization period for a high ratio insured mortgage to 30 years the maximum amount canadians could borrow via refinancing was further lowered to 85 percent so this one, if you if you go back to the 2008 announcement, it went from 40 years to 35, and then in 2011 it went from 35 to 30 years amortization. So the uh, that that government either thought that that strategy was working or it wasn't harsh enough. Uh, I still think 30 years is too long. It should be capped at 25. And then the 2010 announcement, where you could borrow up to 90% of the equity in your home, and now it's to 85. Again, they're concerned about the rising debt crisis. I don't know if this was really geared at as much the housing bubble as much as overall household debt. Definitely. Um, okay, so we're going to jump into June of 2012. Um, this this brought on a third round of tightening. Brought, and, I'll, brought and I'll just mention this is a year and a half later. So that's a that's a bit of a gap. So they must have thought uh, things had leveled off. I, I, I can't recall if they had or hadn't, but go on. 
So um, that third round brought the t- uh, maximum amortization period down down to 25 years, which is, again, closer to what you think it should be, Trevor, um, for high-ratio insured mortgages. A new stress test was also introduced to ensure that the debt costs are no more than 44% of income for lenders seeking a high-ratio mortgage. Refinancing rules were also tightened for the third time, so again, they must have thought this was working, setting a new maximum loan of 80% of a property's value. Another new measure limited the availability of government-backed insurance high-ratio mortgages to homes valued at less than $1 million. So break this down for us, Trevor. So the uh, shortening the amortization makes the uh, mortgage payments more expensive, so that, that that's going to either make people buy houses they truly can afford or, or keep them out of the housing market altogether, so that, that would have helped uh, the housing bubble. The new stress test, 44%, that's, a, that, that's a, a good move. I think it's still a lot of debt to carry for a household. But the uh, 80% borrowing against your equity and your property value, that is still a, a big number but again they're one one thing to read into this is they were taking small steps to not shock the economy and give people a chance to react so the government was doing small sort of changes for two purposes one is to see how how it impacted and two to let people sort of adjust and, and maybe change your thinking slowly over time rather than one huge cut all at once so i, I think uh I was pretty happy with this one, especially the 25-year amortization. Is there anything up to now that you would uh, have advised differently then? Or do you basically agree with the uh, the route the government has taken? I would agree with it. Other than the uh, 80%, being able to borrow 80, 80% of the equity in your home, I, I think that number should be closer to 50%. I, I'm not a fan of uh, home equity lines of credit at all. With interest rates as low as they are, people are, are using home equity lines of credit to buy cars, finance, vacations. I think... If you if you cap that at fifty percent, it would still be high in my mind, but I think it would save a lot of people from themselves. Oh, for sure. Um, so the very the fifth announcement, um, and then the sixth being the one that was just released earlier this month, um, was in December two thousand fifteen. So this is a lot a uh, few years later. So things must have been working with the June twenty twelve announcement. But in December well, twenty well, you know, part part of that. The, the gap might have been uh, getting close to an election. So Definitely, because the next one that did come in was by the Liberal government. So that's very true. So the, you know, as you get closer to an election, these, these uh, changes are very unpopular politically because, it, you know, it, it limits people's ability to buy houses or spend money. So I could see the, the gap there makes sense. So um, it, it, with, with that last change, the recently elected Liberal government, so they were um, the next government to make a change moved to tighten lending rules for homes worth more than 500000 saying that it was focused on pockets of risk in the housing sector. So by doing this, they, they really targeted uh, Toronto and Vancouver, where, where the average home price was in excess of half a million dollars in 2015. So that this was an effort to not, to not hurt housing markets that weren't as prosperous and to a- attack markets where, where there is a, a housing bubble is more of a concern. So I think this is a pre- pretty uh, pretty well-designed uh, strategy. Oh, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, so Trevor, we're going to jump into the second article now. We kind of just laid the groundwork of what what the past um, actions have been to take and, to really concern the housing bubble. And I just want to say that, that the fact that the government's involved if you if you were unsure if there was a housing bubble, uh, I think that the government stepping in and making these changes there, you know, we all saw what happened in the United States 
in the uh, 2008 bubble they had. We don't want to repeat of that here. I think our government is, is, is acting very proactively. Is it possible, Trevor, just to give our listeners some insight to, to get out of a housing bubble without government action? No. Can it happen naturally? Well, it will happen naturally, but what the government's trying to do is they're trying to give us a soft landing. And it, it will, it inevitably will happen on its own if, if, if there's no government intervention, but the landing will be very hard. Meaning uh, people okay. will lose their houses, people may declare bankruptcy, uh, people will be upside down on their mortgages, all sorts of consequences. And definitely something the government wants to help avoid, so that makes sense. Um, this next article, Trevor, it's called the it's called Four Major Changes to Canada's Housing Rules. Um, it's in the Globe and Mail from just earlier this month from Bill Curry. So I'll just read through this article as well, and we'll just uh, take it apart as we go. So the Liberal government has announced sweeping changes aimed at ensuring Canadians aren't taking on bigger mortgages than they can afford in an era of historically low interest rates. The changes are also meant to address concerns related to foreign buyers who buy and flip Canadian homes. So below is a breakdown of the four major changes Finance Minister Bill Morneau announced Monday. So uh, we already touched on this, Trevor, why Canadians can't figure it figure this out for themselves and why they even need government regulation. So I'm glad you touched on that earlier. Um, but what does this really say about humanity? Are we too weak that we can't, we can't even see this? Like, are, are we, do we need someone to step in and, sh- and gu- like hold our hand through this? If people are using the real estate market as an investment tool alone, it really wasn't designed for that. And, and then it really hurts the people that are using real estate for both an investment and a place to live. It's the people who are using real estate because because interest rates are so low, people are running out of places to put their money from an investment standpoint. So real estate has always been considered a safe investment or you know a, a, something that's gone up. And by increasing interest rates, you would you would move that money out of real estate and into interest-bearing investments. So I, I still maintain an increase in interest rates would help our economy uh, a whole bunch. And another aspect of increasing interest rates, with all the baby boomers retired, if you increase interest rates, you, those those baby boomers who are living off investments, they actually end up having more money to spend. So it would it would drive our economy. I think you might motivate them to spend more money, which I don't know. I think increasing interest rates is the, the real solution here. But to, your, to answer your question, do we need the government to step in? We do because the real estate market is being used as an investment tool alone by too many people. Trevor, do you discourage using uh, real estate as an investment tool then altogether? What's your stance? Well, no, I think it's a, a great investment tool. It, when, when you can create a bubble like this, I mean, there's people are going to make a lot of money in this you know, if you get in at the right time, get out at the right time. Uh, I'm all I'm all for free enterprise, but I, I'd like to see it with a soft landing. So you talked about this bubble bursting. Has this housing market bubble phenomenon happened in Canadian past uh, of this magnitude? And when do you think this bubble will burst? Well, it, it has happened in the past. In the late 1980s, there was a huge boom and a bust, and there was very little gov- government intervention. And as a result, there was a lot of hard landings. Do I think this there's going to be a bust? I honestly don't think there, the rules are going to have as big an impact as the government hopes. And I think we're looking at a bust in the next three to five years. That, and that's pretty pretty soon. Um, when you look at when you look at the investment of a house. Well, it's just becoming unsustainable. The house prices are outstripping income by such a a gap. It's just going to become unsustainable. And when people walk away from the housing market, uh, they'll start walking away in masses and then the price will just bottom out. And do you believe this housing bubble is being handled better than it was in 1980? Oh, definitely. 
There was zero government government intervention in, in the 80s. Uh, they just sort of watched it unfold. I think the government has, has taken appropriate action other than their ability to influence interest rates. I, I think they're, they're doing all they can. And Trevor, uh, before we keep moving on through the article, why why did, is this bu- housing bubble just occurring? Well, as of 2008, what what sparked it to reoccur? Well, I, I really think it's just people running out of places to put their money. It, it, well, the infor- foreign investing. I know in, in British Columbia, there's a lot of uh, a lot of Chinese money coming over and investing in real estate just to get it, the money out of their failing China economy. So that that's driving partly driving that that sector. I'm reading a book called The Wealthy Renter, and I recommend it. It's by Alex Avery, and it's a Canadian book. And one thing he talks about in that book is 55% of Canadians live in the top 10 cities in Canada. And in comparison, 27% of Americans live in the top 10 cities in America. So as Canadians, our desire to live in densely populated areas is also driving real estate prices. And that, that would be the Toronto way, probably mostly because it's a very multicultural city, a lot of immigration there. So I, I think it's a lot of factors driving it. The low interest rates, you know, investors not having somewhere else to put their money, all these things together. It's just it's a perfect storm. So uh, moving through the article, we're back into it right now. Buyers with a down payment of at least 5% of the purchase price, but less than 20% must be backed by mortgage insurance. And I just want to say, that's, that's been around since forever. And uh, the mortgage insurance is a CMHC insurance. And when you buy a house with less than 20% down, the buyer's obligated to purchase that insurance. And that is government-backed insurance. So if the buyer defaults on their mortgage, that mortgage protects the lender which would be the bank in most cases. So go on. I just wanted to put that out there. So uh, this protects the lender in the case and the event of a home buyer default, which, which is what you just said. Yeah. Um, these loans are known as high loan to value or high ratio mortgages. In situations in which the buyer has 20% or more of a, for a down payment, the lender or borrower may obtain low ratio insurance that covers 100% of the loan in the event of a default. Mortgage insurance in Canada is backed by the federal government through the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation Insurance, which is sold through CMHC, and two private insurers, Genworth Financial Mortgage Insurance Company Canada and Canada Guarantee Mortgage Insurance Company. The federal government backs insurance offered by the two private sector firms subject to a 10% deductible. Okay, so we're going to go into the, the first change. So uh, it talks about expanding a mortgage rate stress test to insured. So uh, it's moving through the article still. Uh, the first change is expanding a mortgage rate stress test to all insured mortgages. So when, when you apply for mortgage, you can get uh, a fixed um, rate, interest rate, a variable interest rate, and you can get that, you know, a five-year fixed, uh, uh, a, f- a three-year fixed, or you can get a variable rate, which fluctuates, and you can get uh, like a six-month variable. So these are different terms of mortgages. And what people were doing is, so for instance, the the six-month variable is around two and a half percent, and the five-year fixed is around 4.6%. So people were getting approved at the six-month variable which obviously lower interest rate, lower mortgage payment. And they may have, in fact, ended up signing up for the five-year fix, but they were getting approved at the the lowest possible interest rate. And if interest rates ever went up, they may not be able to afford that house. So who does does it affect then, the the new expanding rate stress test? 
Well, this is affecting uh, the buyers, of course, with less than 20% down, so a very small down payment. And they're uh, right on the wire between getting approved and not getting approved. And it's it's first-time home buyers with, without question. So uh, the article says, why is this even being put in place? And the government is saying, quote, the government is responding to concerns that sharp rises in house prices in cities like Toronto and Vancouver could increase the risk of defaults in the future should mortgage rates rise. Yeah, that's the real risk is if you're in a if you have a an open interest rate meaning you're at the mercy of of interest rates going up your your mortgage payments could go up substantially. And it, what's the, what's the focus on Toronto and Vancouver just just because those are the highest yeah. um housing yeah that, that just the, because the house prices are just so over the top so the next change being implemented with this uh, new announcement that just happened earlier this month was as of no quote as of november 30th the government will impose new restrictions on when it will provide insurance for low ratio mortgages end quote so what this is is from the article it says quote the new rules restrict insurance for these types of mortgages based on new cr- criteria including the amortization period, which must be 25 years or less. The purchase price is, should be less than a, $1 million, and the buyer has a credit score of 600 and the property will be owner-occupied. So what I find interesting that this um, new change is that the buyer, uh, the property must be owner-occupied. Yeah, that that is a, a tool to discourage um, people buying real estate as a, purely as an investment tool. And, and I think that's a... And if they are buying it as an investment tool, they have to buy something they can actually afford. So the 25-year amortization and one the $1 million cap, that, that is geared toward the Vancouver Toronto markets. And, and if I'm correct, this is the first time that a property must be owner-occupied. This, this uh, rule has been brought out. I guess they really are seeing how, how much foreign investment is really taking over the housing market. Yeah, and I wonder that, that owner-occupied... I don't know how uh, how they're going to enforce that over a long period of time. I haven't looked into the details, but the way around that would be to have more than 20% down. It Maybe it has to be owner-occupied until you have less than 80% of the property value mortgaged. So it's saying who this affects, and it's saying, quote, this measure appears to be aiming, aimed at lowering the government's exposure to residential mortgages for properties worth $1 million or more a category of the market that has increased sharply in recent years in Vancouver and Toronto. So the article says why this is happening, quote, Vancouver and Toronto are the two real estate markets that are the most concerned for policymakers at all levels of government. These measures must appear to be targeted at those markets, end quote. These two markets make a lot of headlines in the news. As long as these markets are flourishing and, and, and prices are, are in the insane territory, it's going to create nervous people. So I think if they can control these two housing markets, just two cities in Canada, and you, you really control the housing bubble. So this should be relatively easy for the government to come up with rules that target those two cities. Especially because um, that, that, that sh- they're just two cities. It's not like the whole country is this populated. Then it'd be a little bit more. Well, and the challenge is, is in Alberta with the oil industry suffering the way it is with the low oil, oil prices. You don't want to squash those markets because they're, they're hurting already. So it's really trying to come up with rules that just attack those two areas. So our, the next change with this new this recent announcement is that there will be, quote, new reporting rules for the primary residence capital gains exemption, end quote. So what this is stated from the article is that currently any financial gain from selling your primary residence is tax-free does not have to be reported as income. As of this tax year, the capital gains tax is still waived, but the sale of the primary residence must be reported at tax time to the Canadi- Canada Revenue Agency. 
So who this affects is that it affects everyone who sells their primary residence. Uh, they'll have a new obligation to report the sale to the CRA. How, however, the change is aimed at preventing foreign buyers who buy and sell homes from claiming a primary residence tax exemption for which they are not entitled. So why is this being put in place? Well, officials say more data is needed, but Ottawa is responding to extensive anecdotal evidence and media reports showing foreign investors are flipping homes in Canada and falsely claiming the primary residence exemption. So Trevor, is there anything you would like to add to this? Well, I think that this is a really good one. This is this is going to stop people from buying real estate solely as an investment tool. I think the, this is really closing a loophole that this already existed. I mean, they're just putting in, in place, everyone has to report this, the, the proceeds from the sale of a home. I, I, I think it's a it's also a tool for them to start collecting financial information and to, to, to maybe have a, a line in the sand to, to say how much money are people really making off real estate. So, so I, think it's a, I think it's a good tool they're going to use to see how effective these changes are going forward. So the next change is, quote, the government is launching consultations on lending risk sharing, end quote. So what this is, stated from the article, is that currently the federal government is on the hook to cover the cost of 100% of an insured mortgage in the event of a default. The federal government says this is unique internationally and that it will be releasing a public consultation paper shortly on a proposal to have lenders, such as the banks, take on some of that risk. The Department of Finance Canada acknowledged that this would be significant structural change to Canada's housing finance system. So who this affects? This affects mortgage lenders, such as banks, who'd have to take on an added risk. This could potentially lead to higher mortgage rates for home buyers. So why is this change being implemented? Well, quote, the financial government wants to limit its financial obligations in the event of widespread mortgage defaults. It also wants to encourage prudent lending practices, end quote. So Trevor, what's the, what's the complications of having banks take on more of the risk? Well, I believe this is the the sleeper rule. This is the one that has been uh, the least uh, discussed in the news. And that's partly because the details haven't really been released. But making the banks more accountable for the loans they, they, they give for mortgages, banks are all about bottom line profits. I mean, banks are one of the, the, the most profitable companies in Canada, all the five major banks. It'd be holding the banks accountable for uh, high risk loans, they're going to start governing themselves if they're on the hook for defaults. I think this rule could significantly have the biggest impact uh, on the housing bubble, on the debt crisis in Canada overall. I think this is a brilliant one. I I can't wait to hear the details around how much of the obligation of risk is going to be placed on the banks, but uh, it's it's also going to save taxpayers. For currently, when if the government is 100% covers the defaulted mortgages, then uh, the taxpayer is really on the hook for that. Does this does this new change affect the the home buyer in that in that they maybe w- won't default on their mortgage as easily, or how does that play into the lending? Well, the, the, the bank's just not going to loan money to to. Uh, Borrowers who who either don't have enough money down or they don't have the income to truly support the the loan they're applying for. So so I just think that the banks, I mean, they already operate with this mentality, but I think it's going to take it to the next level, knowing that they are ultimately going to be on the on the hook for the for defaults. Definitely, and so that's the end of that article. Article it really has laid out um, the new changes very clearly and very well. We'll link both these articles that we touched on today in our show notes so that you can go back and refer to them yourself. 
Um, they did a great job at explaining it and really broke down the uh, tiny minuscule changes that will be happening. So, so I, I just want to say I'm, I'm currently reading a book called The Wealthy Renter by Alex Avery. I mentioned that earlier. And in a housing bubble, uh, somebody starting out in life, graduated from school, they're contemplating the housing market. I say, go read this book. We'll put links to it in our show notes. Alex Avery, The Wealthy Renter. The book outlines really the true cost of buying versus the true cost of renting. It also talks a lot about the housing bubble and it talks about how we've been sort of lured into this uh, home buying cult, he calls it in his book. And that, but buying a home is how it's, it's not, a, he really breaks down how buying a home is not the greatest investment. So I, I just, I think anyone who's contemplating buying a house, read the book, The Wealthy Renter. It, it is completely Canadian perspective. It is a fabulous book. I, I can't recommend it enough. Sounds like a great read. So Trevor, with the book, um, do you think that the, the whole mentality that you should have, you should be a homeowner, you should buy a home, is that then you think over pushed onto people? Well, it is. In you know, a lot of people have built a lot of wealth from from buying a home. And one thing people lose perspective on is when you buy a house, it, it in essence is forced savings because you have to pay that mortgage back. So in essence, you're you're forced to to save money. That if you're renting, you might end up spending that money on vacation. So if you are a renter, you can still build personal wealth, but it takes a lot more discipline. It takes a a, a plan, a strategy. You can't just sort of drift from uh, month to month ho- hoping. It works out. But if you look at the true cost of buying a house, you've got interest, you've got taxes, property taxes, you've got maintenance, you've got uh, real estate commission, you've got house insurance. Those are a lot of costs renters don't have. So if you take all that money that, that you're not spending on all those things I just mentioned and invested that money in an index fund, uh, I've done the math. So I bought my house 20 years ago, paid it off. I should actually put this on, on the website. I may one day, if I get it organized well enough and that people can understand it, I would have made out better investing in an in index fund back in 1997 than, than I would have buying a house, even with this hot real estate market. So I think people really need to, to look at renting as a viable option of housing. That's a really provocative statement because... I, I think that really goes against the 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 preconceived notion that uh, real estate is your best investment. Well, real estate is is a highly leveraged investment. There's going to be a bust. This bubble is going to burst. Going back to Antony, in the last thirty years, we'll have seen two recent events where real estate has gone down in value, and it will go down in value. We are going to see this. It's, it's going to, it's got to happen. And, and that other thing I mentioned, where house prices are outstripping income, people are are forty year mortgages. Uh, and 35-year mortgages, and these are the uninsured versions now, that they're putting people in, in a huge hole that delaying retirement, uh, delaying uh, life experiences. Uh, a house is a, a, if you look at a house as just a place to live and not an investment, because you can invest your money other places. If you just look at it as a place to live, it's an expensive lifestyle option. Oh, for sure. And and exact, and like there is other options such as renting, which means that you don't get involved in this housing bubble. Uh, well, I just read in the news this morning that these new mortgage rules is really putting a demand on rent in the city of Toronto, meaning rents are going up. And as people are dropping out of the housing market with these new rules, they're already taking effect. So in the short term, this will have effect on, on rents in, in Canada's largest, larger cities. But I just think buying a house right now, it would be a horrible mistake. And Trevor, before we uh, leave this episode, do you have any final uh, thoughts or any simple money solutions to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I'm going to just say 
I just kind of repeat myself. If you are a first-time home buyer and you live in in and around the Toronto or Vancouver, just rent for the next three to five years because this market has, has got to correct itself and, and you're going to save yourself a, a world of heartache. Great final words, Trevor. This has been an absolutely phenomenal episode. I really think it's laid out the changes that are taking place right now and very, very current and relevant. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to check back next Monday where we'll have another episode ready for you. Make sure to check out our website, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for all of our social media updates. Leave us a comment on our website or over on iTunes. We always love to hear about the suggestions that you'd like to hear about. Until next week, keep it simple.